Please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to two texts tonight. First is Exodus chapter 20, the 17th verse, should be familiar to us, and Romans chapter 7. And there'll be a bit of a lengthy reading there. Tonight, we have a topical and didactic sermon on the nature of indwelling sin and the exceedingly sinful nature of even the regenerate man's heart as sinful lusts arise in our heart. We seek to understand the doctrine of concupiscence tonight as it is very relevant and pertinent to our society today. So Exodus 20, verse 17, trusting you are there, hear the word of the Lord. This is the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And I'll turn, if you would, to Romans, the seventh chapter. I'll read the entirety of that chapter to get a sense of it in the reading. We won't exegete it verse by verse, but we do need to understand or hear its scope anyhow. Romans 7. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she, uh, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, worked, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. 
For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, uh, I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our holy God, how exceeding sinful we are. We have the anguish of the apostle before us, and we pray that through the preaching of the word, his anguish would be ours by the same spirit that dwelt in him. Lord, would you enable your minister to preach against sin? It's exceedingly heinous nature. Would you help the minister to preach against the flesh? and our indwelling lusts, that we would mortify our sin and we would not ever find our identity in it, but instead find ourselves driven to the Savior. May the Savior minister to us now through the preached word. Would your spirit then fill this assembly so that in the preaching of the word, both the minister and the members here would know the power of God against sin, as well as the comfort that comes by the Holy Ghost ministering Christ to us as we draw out of the wells of salvation by the word of God. May you be glorified, Father, in this time. And we pray, Father, according to what you have said your word is, is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. May the word of God then be fire and also smash the stony heart that we have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be aware that in recent years, a great controversy has erupted uh, even in the Reformed churches. Uh, professing Christians claim what is known popularly as side B gay Christianity, a view that says that homosexual acts are sinful, but homosexual desire is not, such that a Christian does not have to wrestle over homosexual desire so long as they will remain celibate. The, uh, the theology is this simply, that the act is sinful, but the desire is not sinful. That is the view of, and this has become a popular conference, the Revoice Conference, a conference that has caused uh, no, mad, um, no little distress in the PCA, our sister denomination. This great paradigm shift that has started to come upon the church, which is really a product of our culture, uh, is a, uh, causing the church to rediscover what we profess the Bible to teach and to see plainly in the Bible concerning sinful desires. And what has happened is there's been a sort of a sleight of hand here in uh, the, the, the revoice crowd, the side B crowd, which is rather than call sinful desire sin, they call it brokenness. And this is almost a code word. And what they are doing is they are saying that sinful desire, uh, especially sinful homosexual desire, is really akin to something like blindness. Uh, we are broken. 
rather than sinful when we have such a desire. And this is the sleight of hand, saying basically it's like a disease. It's something like blindness. Uh, For instance, we would never say that blindness is a sin, and this is where they're going with this. It's a product of the fall, and they would equate their own sinful desires in that way. But uh, they would say that my sinful desire as a product of the fall is like blindness and is not actually sin. Uh, 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 We, boys and girls, do confess that blindness, being blind, is not a sin. Uh, It is a consequence and product of original sin of our fall, but it is not in itself sinful. And this is the sleight of hand where they're trying to take sinful desires and count it as something like brokenness. And that's a very dangerous, dangerous thing. It is not orthodox. It is not safe. It is actually against the gospel. This unorthodox reformulation of sinful desire really reaches beyond homosexuality. And that's really our concern here for us today. It goes into the very nature of sin. And it reaches into the holiness of God, the fallen estate, the gospel, and our hope of sanctification. And the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, not just from outward actions, but also inward lustful desires. And so tonight, to understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the greatness, and this is really where our heart ought to go, the greatness of our Savior Jesus and the hope of mortifying sin, we consider a neglected doctrine, which is the doctrine of concupiscence. And our theme is, in view of that, the sinfulness of sinful desire. The sinfulness of sinful desire. And boys and girls, those of you who are here and listening, pay attention to the importance of this doctrine because your generation will have to carry the torch of orthodoxy and contend for the truth of God's word in a very hostile environment, not just now out there in the world, but also now in many elements of the church. This is also a vital teaching for you to understand when it comes to your own sin and how you deal with your own sinful lusts. And when you are tempted and you have sinful desires, how you deal with those, not as slight things, but as things that have to be handed over to the Lord. And so we have three headings tonight concerning sinful desire. First is that they are found in the flesh. Second, they are prohibited by the law. And they are third, overcome in the Savior. First, found in the flesh. Uh, We will spend most of our time here. Now, as I have used the word concupiscence, and I'll spell it C-O-N-C-U-P-I-S-C-E-N-C-E, and you'll find that in Romans 7, verse 8, here in the authorized version, and also on your bulletin in the title of the sermon. Um, Now, that's not a word that we often use probably anymore, certainly not in um, polite society and out in the world anymore. It's, It's fallen out of use. So let's ask what the word means. Well, the Greek word uh, under our translation means to lust, to crave, uh, to have a strong desire. And it really could signify a desire, a strong desire for something righteous or something unrighteous, something sinful. Uh, The word itself doesn't signify that. Context determines the way in which the word is used. For instance, in our text, Romans 7, verse 8, we find it used in the sinful sense. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. But the very same apostle uses the same word in Philippians 2, verse 23. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire. That's that same Greek word that we translate concupiscence often. Having a desire for what? To depart and to be with Christ, 
which is far better. And you get a sense here that the apostle lusts in the positive way to be with Christ. And it's that same Greek word that is being used there. Now, the reason, though, by the time of the authorized version here, that the same Greek word was translated differently is over time, theologically, the definition of concupiscence narrowed to the point uh, where it came to define a desire and a desire for sin, especially sexual sin, but for sin in general. And so that is how we, it is used today, and that is how theologians will use it. Not a lust um, or desire in general, but a lust for sin. And what the Bible teaches very plainly is this, that the lust or desire for sin is in itself sinful. Just to have a lust for sin is sinful. And that is the doctrine concerning concupiscence that we will consider today. And you have to understand how deep this goes. It doesn't matter when lust arises in your heart, whether you even consent to it. It is sin. You may be horrified that you had the lustful thought in your heart. You may want to shut it down and you don't want to act on it. But just the fact that you had it is sin. Let that sink in, brethren, and let the horror of that really sink in to you as you consider your own heart. You know, the reason men have sought to eliminate this doctrine is it shows how even the regenerate man or woman is exceedingly sinful. It is that realization, though, that caused an apostle The Apostle Paul, a far greater Christian than any here, far greater Christian probably than any who has lived, to sink into horror himself, isn't it? Isn't that why he cries in Romans uh, 7 verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? It is indeed exceedingly horrifying if you truly understand the depth of our depravity, each of us. O wretched man, O wretched woman that I am. We would all cry out to God, wouldn't we? We would all cling to Christ all the more. There is nothing good in my flesh. And that is why there is only one place the apostle can go. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because his heart convicts him that even when he doesn't consent to sin, he sees that he is a sinner and sin is found in his heart. But let's first then understand where these sinful desires arise from. And the answer is simple. It is the corruption of our flesh. It is indwelling sin that dwells in us. And that's the thrust of the apostle's argument in verses 17 through 20. Now then, it is no more that I uh, that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So this is the enemy in the gates. This is the enemy in the heart. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, uh, I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, uh, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Sin dwells in you. It is the enemy who is sleeping there in your heart, and maybe not sleeping, but it's quite active, isn't it? Sin the apostle said, dwelt in him. And this is an apostle saying it as a regenerate, holy man of God. 
Sin dwelt in his flesh. It is part of his soul and it is part of the regenerate soul still until glory when blessedly, this is one of the things that we look forward to in glory when it is erased and taken away out of the heart. And it's very interesting here. You notice that he separates himself from it. It is no more I that do it. And it's not that these things are not attributed to him. And we have to understand this, right? There's some bearing here, so bear with me. But he contrasted these works of the flesh with his regenerated, born again, new spirit, his new identity in Christ. I am a new man in Christ. And so these things are contrary to my new born again person. His new identity really has nothing to do with sin at all. Though he still sinned and lusted, he can say, this is not my identity. And this is really a blow to side B Christianity, isn't it? Who say that their sexual orientation is part of their identity. But Paul denounces it. It's not who I am. Just as the blind man says, I am a blind man. I am a blind Christian. The side B gay Christian says, I am gay. But gay and Christian don't go together. You may struggle with indwelling sin, but you are never to call yourself a gay Christian. You're never to put any sin as a modifier to Christian. You are a Christian. You are saved by the grace of the Lord. Your identity is in Christ. Paul says, my sin is not my identity. I am a new man in Christ. And this is a great blessing for you to consider child of God that you can separate the new man which is created after God from the sinful flesh which is being mortified and crucified and being put away. Paul says, though it is truly me lusting for evil, the evil which I would not, that I do, I do it. Yes, I'm not saying I don't do it. I'm not culpable for it. But it is no longer who I am. Now his lust, his concupiscence which arose from his sinful flesh, he saw as his sin. His concupiscence concupiscence is his sin, but it was not his identity. And so in Colossians 3.5, he says these lusts have to be mortified. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, listen to this, evil concupiscence and covetousness which is idolatry. And so that text in Colossians 3.5 says that sinful affections and sinful lusts, evil concupiscence is sin, must be mortified, put to death, boys and girls, that's what mortified means, and they're not to be embraced. And so these lusts that we experience, they arise out of the corruption of our nature, out of original sin. And we think on our Savior then, Jesus Christ, he never, ever experienced concupiscence. He was pure inwardly. Our blessed Savior never, ever struggled with sinful desires. We praise God for that. You remember in John 14, he said, The prince of the world cometh and hath nothing in me. There is no lust. I have no corruption in me. And so I am free from all sin. And that distinguished the Savior from us. Even the best of us, right? Here is an apostle in Romans 7. This is not Christ's experience. This is the experience of a regenerate man in Christ. Now, that leads to another uh, question then, and we've considered this in some ways in times past with the impeccability of Christ. But it leads to this question, 
How does the doctrine of temptation relate to the doctrine of concupiscence? The connection is vital and it's very helpful for your own walk with the Lord, beloved, as you think on temptation. You might ask the question, am I guilty of sin if I am tempted with sin? And the answer is this, it depends. It depends. We have to understand that. Well, there are two kinds of temptations. There are internal temptations and there are external temptations. For instance, some temptations are purely external. For instance, a man or a woman might tempt you to commit some debauchery with them, right? And your spirit is offended by it, even at the thought, and your stomach is turned. Is it a true temptation? Yes, absolutely. There is a temptation to do something evil. Do you not even suffer under it? Yes, your soul is pained as you think of even thinking of doing such a thing as that. By his spirit, then, you don't desire it. You pass the temptation. You don't enter it. You take the way of escape and you don't sin. And this is exactly how temptation affected Jesus. When the tempter comes... In Matthew 4 and Luke 4, in the wilderness, Christ being so holy, so sanctified, that the very thought of sinning pained him. There was nothing in him that desired it. He later said to Peter, what? Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. Right? The the suggestion of sin was offensive to Christ. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. But the regenerate man or woman can experience the same thing as they are sanctified, can't they? You feel the same thing, the same pain with external temptations at times where there's nothing in you that by God's help uh, uh, desires it and you are uh, almost your stomach is turned at the thought of committing a sin like that. Um, You remember Joseph when Potiphar's wife tempted him to sin. Did he entertain it? No. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Genesis 39, the sin, uh, that temptation did not become sin. Outward temptations become sin if we consent and enter into it. But they are not sin if we turn away from it, as Joseph and Jesus did. Now, on the other hand, there is a kind of temptation that is always sinful. A temptation that arises from inward lust, uh, from concupiscence. You can turn to, uh, and I would turn there if you would, uh, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we will consider verses 13 through 15. This is a very key uh, set of verses for the doctrine of concupiscence, and so let's consider it together. James 1, verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This, James is showing, is the second kind of temptation, one that is not external, one that arises from our own lusts, from our inward flesh. As James wrote, not of God. This is a temptation that comes when our own lust and our own sinful desire draws us away. It is the second kind of temptation that is actually and properly sinful in itself. Just to be tempted in this manner, 
right? When you crave sin inwardly and, and that arises in your heart, when you covet, when you have an impulse to lie or to lust, and you even might say, I am shocked that that's in me. It is already sin. It is already sin. Even if your will wants to shut it down afterward, even if you don't make any motions, even if you are tempted inwardly to say a lie and you stop your mouth, you put duct tape over it, you have already sinned just at the suggestion that has arisen from your heart. And this is what Paul is especially wrestling with in Romans 7, internal temptations that come out of his own flesh that are already sin. John Owen is very helpful here. He put it this way as he distinguished external and internal temptation. Now, when such a temptation comes from without, it is unto the soul an indifferent thing, neither good nor evil, unless it be consented unto. So that's where consent enters in, when it is an external temptation. But the very proposal from within, it being the soul's own act, is its sin. In other words, Internal lust as it arises out of our own soul and not from outside is sin already. Part and parcel of the doctrine of concupiscence. But you might say, hold on, pastor. How is, that, how is lust a sin if we consider James 1.15? And I will say that those who oppose the doctrine of concupiscence use this as a proof text against it. They say, look. James says, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. They say, you can distinguish lust from sin, because it is only when lust conceives, uh, it brings forth sin. Well, it's actually not James's intention at all to separate lust from sin. What James gives you is a metaphor. He teaches us on sin by giving us its life cycle. This is the life cycle of sin as though sin is treated as a person who is conceived, born, and dies. The analogy here he uses is to show us that lust is sin in embryonic form. That's essentially what it is. It is sin as an embryo. And when the will engages it and acts upon it, it is birthed. In the same way, a man in the womb is called an embryo or fetus often, isn't he? But he is a man in every stage. So it is with sin. Lust is sin in embryonic form. And when that lust is acted upon in our parlance, as we normally speak, we usually call that sin. We will say something like this, boys and girls, that man committed the sin of adultery. But do you recall what lust is according to Christ? Matthew 5, 28, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already where? In his heart. Lust is sin. James and Jesus are not at odds with one another at all. So James 1, 15 is harmonized and not isolated from the rest of Scripture. This is what the papists love to do, is to isolate Scriptures. Whether it is Jesus in Matthew 5 or Paul in Romans 7 and Colossians 3.15, or as we will consider in the next heading, Moses in Exodus 20, verse 17, there is a cloud of witnesses that teaches us sinful lust is sin, and we are guilty before God because of it. Beloved, the solemn truth is, Your will, my will, doesn't have to engage in it or consent to it, to lust, for it to be counted as sin. 
And here's the question, really. You ask yourself, who has ownership of your lust? Is it not you? Who are you going to impute lust to? The devil cannot put it in you. He did not insert lust into Eve in the garden. God doesn't tempt you in this way. James says so. Sinful desire, lust, belongs to you and it belongs to me. Who else can take ownership? It's that simple. So concupiscence is not at all like blindness. It is not at all brokenness. It is not morally neutral. Jesus said that blindness can be to the glory of God, didn't he? But sinful desire is not immediately to the glory of God. Like all sin, it strikes against the glory and holiness of God. It is contrary to the nature of Christ and the holiness of God. You know that because that is why you feel unclean when lust arises at your most sanctified. You know that it belongs to you because why do you feel unclean when it arises, even if you don't consent to it? It's because you know It is against the holiness of God and it is properly sin. And you know in glory you will never have lust like that. One last thing in this because I want to distinguish ourselves from the papists in another way. Sexual desire is not inherently sinful. Sexual desire in the confines of marriage, the marriage union, it is lawful and good. 1 Corinthians 7 commends the activity of the marriage bed, calling it due benevolence. It is not sin at all, and we have to be clear on that. Um, And I just need to say that much. But it is within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. So with that understanding of the doctrine and from whence uh, concupiscence arises, our own sinful flesh, let's consider our second heading to realize that concupiscence was prohibited in the law as well. You may have noticed that the apostle reaches back into the commandments, doesn't he? To teach on the sinful nature of lust. In Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. Boys and girls, which commandment does the apostle pull out? It is the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And thus, this further cements the doctrine of concupiscence. It doesn't anchor it in the New Testament. It anchors it in the Old Testament, showing that the, the doctrine has been the same throughout the law of God in both testaments. There is, and this is the way you have to see this, one entire commandment is devoted to concupiscence, the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Coveting is an internal act. It is not external It is an internal act of the will. And the law of God says this lust for what is not yours is what? Sin. It is sin. And here you have lust in the law shown to be sin. And the 10th commandment is brilliant on this. Notice how it prohibits what? Coveting your neighbor's wife. That is the 7th commandment, isn't it, boys and girls? 
And it is saying to you that just to have lust in the heart is sin. To lust for your neighbor's wife. You never have to commit the deed. As soon as David saw Bathsheba and lusted for her, he had broken the commandments. He didn't actually have to go and commit the deed. And in that, I think it's brilliant that Jesus didn't teach anything new in Matthew chapter 5, did he? He is just amplifying and clarifying what the law of God has already said concerning lust. That's something we are prone to ignore, how far-reaching the law is. It regulates our heart, it regulates our lusts, as well as our outward actions. And so Romans 7.14 says, we know that the law is spiritual. It's spiritual. It's not just outward, but it regulates our whole man, our thoughts, our words, our lusts, our actions. And so the 10th commandment teaches that concupiscence is sin and against the moral law of God. The 113th question of the Heidelberg Catechism is very concise and good here. It's on your bulletin. And it asks, what is required in the 10th commandment? Answer, that not even the least inclination or thought against any of God's commandments ever enter into our heart, but that with our whole heart we continually hate all sin and take pleasure in all righteousness. That is a beautiful catechism question and answer, said very plainly. Now, because man is so sinful in this way, let us not forget that there are degrees of sin as well that the acting on a sinful desire is more heinous than not acting on a sinful desire. Because sinful man (laughs) will say something as profoundly stupid as this. If Jesus says, I have already committed adultery in my heart, why not just go all the way? I'm already guilty. If hatred is murder in the heart, why not just plunge the the knife into the man's heart? I'm already guilty of this sin, aren't I? No. Murder is more heinous than hatred. Physical adultery is more heinous than lust in the heart. James 1.15, if it teaches you anything, teaches you that you must stop sin even when it is lust before it is fully grown and matures, especially before it involves other souls and the damage it does to many men and women. Sin, when it is conceived, just becomes more and more heinous, heinous and wicked and evil. It is the great plague of plagues. Larger Catechism, question 151, says, Sin is more heinous if it is not only conceived in the heart, so it is sin when it's conceived in the heart, but breaks forth in words and actions. And the proof text is James 1.14 and 15. But also Micah 2.1. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it. It's more evil to practice it than simply devise it in your bed. That's what the teaching of the scripture is. Bad enough to devise iniquity in the heart, far worse to practice it. So boys and girls, remember, lust is evil, but acting on it is a greater evil. But it is all evil. That is what side B revoice theology does not teach you and admit. And so there's been a lot of theology so far, a lot of scripture, 
but uh, to express how sinful concupiscence is. But I also want you to remember there is nothing new under the sun. This is not a new teaching. This is not a new doctrine. This is not something that has just come recently as controversy in the Church of Jesus Christ. And part of the problem and uh, with side B Christianity is they don't realize this is a very old debate. We have forgotten historical theology. This dispute is not new. The church has fought over this before and come to the orthodox conclusion we are arriving at. It was part of the debate between the Roman Catholic Church and the reformers. The Roman Catholic said concupiscence is bad, but not in itself sin. Whereas the Orthodox, the Reformed, pointed to the Bible and said, how can it not be sin when it is so plain here? And the reason that Rome wants to dispute this is they want to dispute the exceedingly sinful nature of man. That man is not just broken, but he is thoroughly evil to the core. This allows them to deny the gospel of pure grace not wanting to admit how hopeless man is without Jesus Christ. Uh, At the Council of Trent, sad to say, Session 5, Article 5, they wrote, Concupiscence, which the Apostle there, this is incredible, which the Apostle sometimes calls sin. The Holy Synod declares that the Catholic Church has never understood it to be called sin as being truly and properly sin in those born again, but because it is of sin and inclines to sin. So here you have an admission. The apostle calls concupiscence sin, but they hand wave it away, don't they? They say it inclines to sin, but is not actually sin. And that is actually revoice theology, which is papist theology. That's all they're doing is they're borrowing from the Roman Catholics. But in contrast, the Protestant reformers, with their confessions based on the word of God, as we have sought to understand the word from the last two headings, said something else. The 39 articles of the Anglican Church, Article 9 of Original or Birth Sin, says, The apostle doth confess that concupiscence and lust hath itself the nature of sin. Very plain and very to the point, which is what James 1.15 says, Lust has the nature of sin, even in embryo form. And on your bulletin, I have cited our own confession of faith, Its sixth chapter says in Article 5, the corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Every motion, every lust of the sinful flesh is truly and properly sin. What was the proof text? You probably have heard the language in our reading Romans 7, 5 through 8. The language comes from Romans 7, 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. And if you have maybe the New King James or another translation, uh, you might find that it is translated, motions of sin is often translated sinful passions, which shows you the, the lust of the heart is sin, concupiscence. And so it does not take much work to see Paul's words that the motions of sins which arise from the flesh bringing forth fruit unto death is in fact the very same life cycle that James teaches in James 1, 14 and 15. He just states it a bit differently. But the motions of sins, the sinful passions 
are properly sin. So the case has been made. I trust that concupiscence out of the word of God, and I brought the confessions last because you have to see these things out of the word. That's where our faith is, not in confessions, but the confessions are helpful to see how godly men synthesize these things. The case has been made concupiscence is sin and not brokenness. So with all that, we are finally in the position to consider our final heading, which is that concupiscence is overcome in the Savior. And I know, brethren, this has been perhaps a lot for you. This is a very didactic sermon. I'm well aware. A lot of scripture, a lot of theology, a lot of confessions and catechetical work, just to the point where we can say definitively concupiscence is sin. But more than that, as we come to this last exhortation, I hope you have sensed how great your own sinfulness is. Just how great your sinfulness is. That you might say, forget the revoice, folks. I now see how great my own sinfulness is, even if I am heterosexual. That lusts, even unbidden lusts, which arise out of my own heart, I am guilty of because they are mine. They are my lusts and they are my sin. Even when I say, no, I cannot give in to my craving for sin. Just having the craving means I have sinned against God. Maybe that gnaws at you. And for the first time, you understand David in Psalm 40. Mine iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. And why Paul at the crescendo of Romans 7, just all he can do is cry out to God, O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That's where we are brought to, beloved, when we understand the doctrine of concupiscence. And what is his own answer? What is the only path of escape for the apostle? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what happens when you see how exceedingly sinful we are, how our lusts, even those we don't consent to, are damning. Every pretense that you and I have of some innate self-righteousness evaporates in an instant, in a moment. And our soul has no place to run for safety and refuge but Christ. And we realize perhaps for the first time how great a sinner we are and just how great a Savior God has given us in Christ. And how beautiful then the opening is then of Romans 8. After the great discovery of the depths of our sin, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You can almost sense a pent-up hallelujah, praise the Lord from the apostle after discovering his own sin. We are justified in God's own eyes, because Jesus Christ imputes his perfect, impeccable righteousness, a righteousness that never once had lust in his heart, a righteousness so profoundly pure and perfect that we, with all of our lusts, can look on the Lord's righteousness imputed to us and counted as our own and say, praise God, there is no condemnation for me. And this is where we must begin to look when in anguish of soul because of the lust of our flesh. I will cite McShane probably till I'm dead. 
But for every look into your heart, take 10 looks at Christ. But also, Jesus is not just there for your justification. He is also there for your sanctification, child of God. Romans 8.1 says that we who are justified are to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Even as we say, hallelujah, no condemnation. I am called to walk in the spirit. If we are grieved by the lust in our heart, we look to the hope of the gospel. We are justified in Christ, but also a gospel that says the Lord can sanctify us and pluck out the root of sin, even when it is in that embryo form out of us. We are then to confess our lusts to the Lord and repent of them. When lust arises, we are thankful that there's no condemnation, but I must bring this to the Lord asking for divine help. And you're not to give up on that. You are to press towards the Lord as many times as lust arises in your heart. You are to be as the widow to that unjust judge. And you are to go time and time again. Here it is again, Lord. Take it. Remove it. Wrestle with the Lord as Jacob did until he gives you the victory. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 tells you Christ has given you a mighty help. This I say then, walk in the Spirit. Okay, so here you can take Romans 8, 1 and and marry Galatians 5, 16. Walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth after the Spirit, and the Spirit, praise God, against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You almost sense Romans 7 there, don't you? Call on the Holy Spirit and ask Him to declare open war against your lusts. Seek to walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? You're to be in the means of grace, but also to walk and exercise grace. You're to do what is righteous in His eyes and walk according to the Spirit. In Galatians 2.20, the Apostle said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, And gave himself for me. What does the apostle see? His identity there. I have been crucified with Christ. My flesh has been put to death. And the remnants that I have are are sort of like the last thrashings of a wild beast that has been speared and gored and is breaking out in me. But I have been crucified with Christ. The power of indwelling sin has been struck by Christ on the cross. And he lives in you now by the Holy Spirit and he can and will go to war with your lusts. Galatians 5, 24 through 25. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Do you see how, how often sinful affections and lusts are called as things to be put to death? Concupiscence. But he says, you are to call on the Lord to fight for you, brethren. When the Israelites fell back, it was always because they fought in their own strength, in their own power. But when they called on the Lord, the Egyptians themselves fled. Let us flee from the face of Israel. Why? For the Lord fighteth for them. When lust 
breaks out, who are you going to call? Are you going to be like the foolish Israelites who walked out so often against Philistines without God? No, you are to go in the strength of the Lord. You call on the Lord. Lord, fight for me. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Sin cannot face the power of Jehovah, and you know this. Call on the name of the Lord against an enemy far worse than Pharaoh. Let me also say this. Part of the neglected beauty of James 1.15 is that we don't know sin's life cycle. You are, I suppose every military is trained in this way, or ought to be, you strike the enemy when he is weakest. And that is what James teaches you. One reason you don't find uh, victory over sin is you don't strike at it when it is actually most vulnerable and is at its own weakest. You need to attack sin when it is in that embryonic stage, when it is in the form of lust. Don't just ignore lust and say, well, I didn't act on it. I guess I'm doing okay. What's going to happen is lust is just going to get stronger and stronger and stronger, and you will sooner or later act on it. Untreated lust grows, it matures, and you are to call on the Lord to mortify sin when it is lust. The very first motion of sin is to be killed. This is how we find victory over sin. We mortify it at the root. We repent of it, and we ask the Lord to destroy it. In addition, you are to cultivate the grace of vivification. You are to grow in newness of life. It's not enough to root out the old fleshly nature. That's good, but not enough. In fact, you won't have, and I think you know this, much success in rooting out uh, lust unless you grow and nurture the new man. You are right to give vitality to the new man even as you suck strength out of the old man. You crucify, Christ crucifies the old man, but he is giving meat and milk to the new man, and that's what you ought to do. Which the new man, we read, is created, uh, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And so you have Ephesians 4 before you, and you might want to study that chapter. It is a beautiful chapter. The Heidelberg Catechism 113 says, we must not just hate all sin, but what? Take pleasure in all righteousness. And this is the part that is often neglected. You and I are to incline our hearts to what is good. You are to meditate on the law of God. You are to see its beauty, its perfection, and ask for the grace of God that thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, even in my own heart. You are to fortify the new man by the Holy Spirit, even as you seek to mortify the flesh by him. Discover the power of the doctrine of Ephesians 4 and 5. Putting off the old man, mortification, putting on the new, which is vivification. Right? Uh, the apostle, I'll just give you a few of the brief things he says. You put away lying, but that is mortification. But what are you to put on? The speaking of truth, seeing us as members uh, of one another. You're to put away theft, that is to mortify, but you are to do honest labor and give to the needy, that is to vivify. You're to put away corrupt communication, mortify, but put on what is good to the use of edifying, ministering grace to your hearers, vivification. You're to put away malice, that is mortification. You're to put on what? Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, 
vivification. Put away filthiness, foolish talking and jesting, mortify, but put on the giving of thanks, vivify. See, if you look at that chapter, the apostle shows you how you grow the new man and you put away the old and so on. So live as a new man, a new creation, which after God is created in righteousness and holiness. Well, brethren, concupiscence is sin, and it truly would condemn you outside of Christ. But in Christ is our help if we have gone to him by faith. You need to find your rest in his righteousness. There is now no condemnation in him. You are never lost. This is your rest if you are in him by faith. And if you are here and you have been outside of Christ, you have to see just how exceedingly sinful sin is. You cannot pretend like the Pharisees that you're righteous when this is your heart. This is why you need a savior. You may have even grown up in the church, boys and girls, and you can say, I have never fornicated. I have never had homosexual uh, relationships. I am not transgender and so on. But inside your heart, you know you have lust. And this is why you need a savior. And this is why you need Christ and why you are condemned if you're not in him. And if you have come to him, the beauty is that you know that Christ was condemned in your place for not just your outward actions, but also every disgusting, unclean thought that was produced by your soul. And that is the greatness and grandeur of Christ as your Savior. And so, believer, if we neglect the doctrine of concupiscence, is not the work of Christ diminished? How great our Savior is that he has been a propitiation for all of this. And so we rest in that way, knowing we are never lost in him. But when it comes to sanctification, if I can put it this way, there is no rest in this life. You are not lost, but you're called to fight the good fight You're called to fight a good warfare against sin and lust. And you can have victory over any particular sinful desire as you call on the Lord's name uh, as help in the fight. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting what? Holiness in the fear of God. That is our calling. Let me say, I found the more that I studied the doctrine, the more that I did, in a sense, pity those uh, who call themselves gay Christians. Because they do see homosexuality as abhorrent. Their worry and their anguish is, if sinful desire is sin, just how exceedingly sinful they are. Because they know rightly, homosexual sin is worse than heterosexual sin. Bible's very plain on that. And so all they can do is see themselves like Paul in Romans 7 and uh, David in Psalm 40. My sins are more numerable than the hairs on my head and wretched man that I am. And they are in anguish over it. But the solution is never saying that my sinful desire is brokenness. That is a plaster that won't hold The cure of Christ comes to you when, like Paul, you cry, O wretched man that I am, and see that that is true not only for justification, but for sanctification as well. That you can say, 
I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for which we can only say amen and praise God. May we minister that gospel hope to those ensnared in sin of every kind. For now, let us arise and go to the Lord in prayer, if able. O Lord, our God, we come humbly before thee, seeing just how sinful we are as sinners. Lord, I suspect that for all eternity, as our sinfulness is more and more discovered, our sinfulness in this life, we will praise thee all the more in eternity, seeing just what Christ has done to Forgive us and cleanse us of our sin. All the filth and wickedness that we have committed both in the heart and outwardly, what Jesus has done to save us, we are astonished. But Lord, help us to fight the good fight of faith and to seek for the glory of God to put away our lusts. Help us to recognize our lust and even when we don't consent to it, bring it to the Lord to be repented of. Lord, if there are any here who have just today seen their great sin and their need for a Savior, may this be the day of salvation to them, and may they call on the name of the Lord who is mighty to save the worst of sinners, the chief. Lord, may you bless this text to us and this doctrine that we would better glorify Christ and minister him to a generation that is perishing in sin. We ask this in his name. Amen.